Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome. This is Religion Today. I'm your host, Martin Tanner. It's the day after Christmas, hence I thought a more extended version for the intro music of Handel's Messiah would be appropriate. I just love Handel's Messiah, some of the best music ever. Today I wanted to start off by making a correction to my program last week. I inadvertently used the word Christian when I should have used the word Jewish to describe the community to which Joseph and Mary fled taking the baby Jesus. There was indeed later a Christian community in Egypt, but certainly there was no Christian community in Egypt at the time Jesus was an infant and had not even started his ministry. But there was a Jewish community there, and it's at that jumping-off point that I wanted to start today's broadcast, which is going to be centered on Jesus' early life, maybe a little bit more information about the Bethlehem star, because last week I didn't talk about what it likely was, and I should include that today. Then I want to conclude with some information about the idea of who the Messiah was what he did, and how he was understood within Jewish thought and, of course, early Christianity, because at that time, Jewish thought and early Christianity was essentially the same, except that one thought Jesus was the Messiah and the others didn't. So why would there have been a Jewish community in Egypt at the time Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus fled there to escape Herod. Answer, let's go back to Book of Mormon times. In 600 BC, Lehi received a dream saying Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. He takes his family. He leaves for the new world. This is the beginning of the Book of Mormon narrative. Just a few years later, in about 598 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar and his great army put siege to Jerusalem, and completely sacked it. Jerusalem was destroyed. 
Many of its inhabitants were killed, but not all. Those who lived were exiled, some to Babylon, some fled into other places. The greatest number, as far as we know, were exiled to Alexandria, Egypt, and other places in that close proximity. That included a number of people who had, of course, Jewish scriptures. And over the next several hundred years, the Jewish community had a new generation, and that new generation became enmeshed, if you will, in the local community. And then you had another great impact that happened in about 300 B.C. when Alexander the Great conquered Egypt. And at that point, almost all of the known world was under subjugation to Alexander the Great, who, of course, spoke Greek. Hence, everyone had to learn some Greek. And at that point, the Jewish community decided that they needed, for the sake of preserving scriptures and having their next generation be religious and literate within the Jewish faith, they had the Jewish scriptures of the time translated into Greek. That is known to us as the Septuagint, and it is significantly different from the later translation done by Jerome in the 4th century AD, which ultimately came down to us through Latin and turned into our King James Bible. So the Septuagint and the Jewish scriptures have quite a different history than the Bible that we have. And sometimes you will look at prophecies in the New Testament. You can't find them in the King James Old Testament or in many of the New um, scriptures. That's because they're different from the Septuagint in some significant ways. So that Septuagint in Greek was the Bible that was in existence at the time of Christ. By the time of Christ, many of the Jews, along with others, had migrated back to Jerusalem and surrounding areas. And at that point in time, you had this very interesting phenomenon. The temple was rebuilt. Many great projects had been undertaken. Herod was the king, but still Greek was a significant language because the Roman Empire ruled everything. Hence, at the time of Jesus and when the New Testament was written, all of the scriptures, all of the New Testament as we have it, was written in Greek. All of the known manuscripts that we have of the New Testament were written in Greek. Hence, you have sometimes uh, references to, and as the Jews would say, or when Jesus dies on the cross, it talks about what he said and translates it back or uses the original words in Hebrew intermixed in the, or, um, in the scriptures that we have written in Greek. So when Jesus was born, that's what was going on. Uh, there was a large Jewish community still in Egypt. Mary and Joseph fled there. Then they came back. wanted to follow up with some of the other information from last week, which was the likely date of Jesus' birth. 
And what was the Star of Bethlehem? Because I brought it up last week, but didn't talk about what it actually was. Well, it turns out that the evidence from the Bible and astronomy suggests, and this is by no means ironclad certain, but it suggests that the Star of Bethlehem was a comet that was visible in about 5 BC. In 5 BC, there was an ancient Chinese record that fit with that comet. Now, there could have been other records as well as the Chinese one that have just been lost to history, but we do have that record. Now, against that background, the evidence also points to the idea that Jesus would have been born probably somewhere between March 9th and May 4th of 5 BC, probably around the time of the Passover, which would fit very nicely with Jewish Passover ideas, and also the later Christian ones about who the Messiah was to be and why Passover happened. Of course, Passover celebrated the salvation of the Jews from Egypt. They were saved out of Egypt. We also know that Passover continued because there was a belief that the Jews would be saved again from the Romans and from all of the other horrible things throughout history that had happened. And so this idea of a Passover as celebrating a future Messiah, a future salvation, a future Savior is something that dovetailed in well with the Passover's origins of being saved out of Egypt. One last point before we take our break, and that is there's this interesting phrase in Matthew chapter 2, 9 about the star of Bethlehem. It says it stood over Bethlehem. This stood over phrase is something that is always, as near as I can tell, in the ancient writings used to refer to a comet. Josephus, in his wars, in a number of places, mentions that a star resembling a sword stood over the city of Jerusalem. He's probably there talking about a comet of A.D. 64, mentioned by Tacitus, the emperor. Comets are often used in reference uh, to, to the words, well, the, the, I guess a better way to say it is the phrase stand over is almost always used in reference to comets. As a matter of fact, I haven't used that phrase stood over to refer to any other object like a star. All right, we'll be back. It's time for a break. I'm Martin Tanner. This is Religion Today. We're talking about Jesus, the star of Bethlehem, and likely dates for Jesus' birth, life, resurrection, and thereafter. Stay tuned. We're back. This is Religion Today. I'm your host, Martin Tanner. It's the day after Christmas. We're talking about some of the details about Jesus' life and when things likely happened. When we took our break, we were talking about how this phrase stood over, invariably, as far as I know, refers to a comet. It doesn't refer to stars. So that also dovetails into the idea that it's likely that when Matthew uses this phrase in chapter 2, verse 9, 
that this star stood over Bethlehem, he was referring to a comet, a comet kind of a star, to use the vernacular of of the day. Now, this isn't the only time, Josephus, where a comet is described as the star of Bethlehem. One of the earliest Christian statements outside of the Gospels comes from Origen, who was an early church father in the third century. And he stated that, quote, the star that was seen in the east we consider to be a new star partaking of the nature of those celestial bodies which appear at such times as comets, close quote. He's saying it was a comet. Using this and a number of other sources, it's highly likely that Jesus was born between March 9th and May 4th of 5 BC. The shepherds, of course, would have come to visit shortly after that. Then they, Mary and Joseph would have left for Egypt after Jesus was circumcised eight days later. The Magi would have come to visit probably before they left, although there's some argument that perhaps they visited after. And then you have something that's fascinating, the death of Herod in March of 4 BC. Since Herod was alive at the time of Jesus' birth, we know that Jesus had to have been born before 4 BC. Jesus, according to tradition, would have then been 33 years old when he was baptized, probably in A.D. 29, according to tradition. And then we would have, according to the tradition and writings of the early church fathers, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus also about the time of the Passover. The Last Supper was sort of a recasting of the Passover meal. And Jesus ties himself to the Son of Man, and he also ties himself to the Passover meal, which is when the Jews were saved before, indicating that he would save them in the future. The Passover meal on, in April A.D. 33, which is the traditional year of Jesus' crucifixion, would have happened on about April 3rd. And that's fascinating because that means that Jesus was born and also died very, very close to Passover. His birth and death were both very, very closely tied. That would also make him a little bit older than many people traditionally think. When he was crucified and resurrected, if that indeed was the historical date of 33, and he was born in 5 BC, that would make him about 37 years old, not 33 years old. Then we get to the name that Jesus had, which has always been fascinating to me. People ask from time to time, well, how would Jesus get the name Jesus if it means the Christ or the Messiah? And the answer is, 
he wasn't the only one that had that name. It was a very popular name. As a matter of fact, when Jesus was born, the two most popular names for a new Jewish baby, who was a boy, were Judas and Jesus. And of course, after Christianity started, nobody wanted to name their little boy Judas, and they didn't want to name him Jesus either. So Jesus' name was a popular one. It was the same name that Joshua had, Joshua of the Old Testament. It comes from a Hebrew phrase that means Jehovah saves. It's been transliterated to us into English in a number of different forms, Jesus, Joshua, Yeshua, all of those are from the same root phrase or word, Jesus saves. And then we get to the, and of course, this this is Hebrew word. Then we get to the Greek part of the name, which we now use to talk about Jesus or to describe him, which is Christ. This comes from Greek, Christos, the Greek word for anointed one, which was the Greek equivalent of Messiah. Messiah, the Hebrew word, means literally anointed one. The actual phrase is to be smeared upon with pure olive oil, or to have oil of olive oil poured upon you. And that meant that you were chosen or set apart. That meant that you were special and ordained of God. It was the way that King David and all of the succeeding kings of Israel and many of their prophets were chosen by being anointed a Messiah, a Messiah, a Savior. Prophets save, kings save, and of course, in translating that to Christos, the the, uh, Greek word, That was also a proper phrase for Jesus. When we get to the idea of how did the early Christians know that Jesus was the Savior, there's, of course, the Christian message, but we also have a fascinating idea that ties them in with the knowledge that Jesus was the God of the Old Testament. If you read in Jude chapter 1, verse 5, Well, there is only one chapter, but if you go to Jude 5, you will find that it says in most modern translations something like this, although you are fully aware of it, I want to remind you that the Lord saved the children out of Egypt. The earliest and best manuscripts, Christian manuscripts of Jude 5 say this, although you're fully aware of this, I want to remind you that Jesus delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt. The early Christians closely associated Jesus with the God of the Old Testament. We know that from Jude verse 5. We also know that because he is quoted as using this fascinating phrase, Son of Man, to describe himself. Son of Man is a phrase that comes out of Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And it is a description. It Son of man is used 107 times in the Old Testament. The majority, 93 times, are in the book of Ezekiel. And most of those talk about a human or a person. Daniel tells us that 
this is someone who he sees and vision who's like unto a son of man. And that phrase was shortened down to just son of man. And so who is the one who is like a son of man to use the earliest representation? This was a heavenly being, which Daniel tells us is a person who has come to save the world. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 describes how the Ancient of Days gives dominion over the earth to one like a son of man who is to make all wrongs right and to save the world. Jesus, in describing himself as son of man, shows his personal knowledge of his calling as the Savior. If you have a question or comment about this program, feel free to send me an email. Send it to martinstanner at gmail.com. I'll be happy to respond and give you any of the background citations. Join me again next week. This is Religion Today. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andreas Martin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.